Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now, let's dig in. Well, hello, bed crimers. What's up? Hope you're having a great day. Nearly every hour since Gilgo Beach suspect Rex Hoerman's arrest, more details about him come to light. I think what's freaking everyone out, along with the three women whose deaths he's charged with, and of course the eight other bodies that were found in the same vicinity, is that this guy who's currently charged with first-degree and second-degree murder was living so close to where their bodies were found, just a short drive away. And aside from his soaring height of six feet four inches and large burly frame, he sort of looked like an average Joe, sort of. Criminal profilers are wondering if the perpetrator dumped the bodies along those desolate stretches of marshland out in Long Island because not only was it a not often visited place, but also because it would allow him to visit the bodies whenever it struck his fancy. I know that's so sick, but we know that many well-known serialists like Ted Bundy, Edmund Kemper, and Gary Ridgway would often visit the scenes of their crimes and the bodies. Bundy took this to outrageous heights by spending the night in the forest with his deceased and rotting victims. Serialists also have a tendency to collect trophies from their victims, so you can be sure detectives are going over every inch of Hoerman's Massapequa Park home to look for these. I'm sure they're looking for items that may link him not only to those three women, but also to other victims. I mean, at this point, we have no idea how prolific this guy was. Investigators are going to be looking for things like identification cards, jewelry, articles of clothing. Eleven sets of remains were found in and around Gilgo Beach, yet Hoerman has only been charged for three of the victims. But the authorities say he's the prime suspect in Maureen Brainard Barnes' death as well, and they've hinted that more charges may be coming. Criminal profilers popping up on YouTube channel are also saying that Hoerman, if he is the perpetrator, has most likely harmed more than these three women. He sounds like a classic serialist. Speaking of his home, a second interior designer who worked with him as a freelancer for five years on and off from 2002 to 2007 came out to say that in 2005, she visited his home for about three hours. He wanted her to take measurements for a remodeling project. She met his wife and two kids, a daughter and a son with special needs. The Hoermans were planning a remodel of their kitchen at the time, and Rex asked the designer to take measurements of the entire house. But when she went downstairs, she came upon a large locked room that was about 12 feet by 15 feet, and Rex Hoerman blocked her from entering. He told her it was full of weapons. But when she found out what he'd been accused of, she began wondering 
if that could have been a place where he took his victims. Suffolk County police have said Hoorman committed the crimes against the three women when his wife, 59-year-old Aza Ellerup, was out of state with their two kids. News of a locked basement room, at least for me, is conjuring images of the movie Silence of the Lambs. We know these women disappeared at some point, and then their remains were later located, wrapped in camouflage-printed burlap along remote stretches of coastline in New York's Long Island. Did Hoorman hold these women hostage in that room? And if so, for how long before doing them in? It's a very scary thought. If he did take the victims to his home, that could maybe explain why strands of his wife Aza's hair were found on or near three of the victims. DNA from those strands of hair matched DNA that came from 11 bottles inside a garbage can outside the Hoorman home. The DNA on the bottle belonged to Aza, so her strands of hair could have been transferred from her husband's clothing or his person to the victims, or her strands of hair could have come in contact with the victims at the Hoorman home. Rex Hoorman's hair also ties him to one of the victims. During the initial examination of those skeletal remains and of materials discovered in the grave, the Suffolk County Crime Lab recovered a male hair from the bottom of the burlap the perpetrator used to wrap the victim's body. Analysis of the DNA found on that hair and of DNA found on a pizza crust, I'm sorry but that's so New York, in a box thrown away by Rex Hoorman outside his Manhattan office matched. Rex Hoorman is now connected to that victim. Back to his house and that locked basement. It seems likely that Rex Hoorman, if he's guilty, did not commit the crimes outside. He likely would have wanted to enjoy the concealment of his house. The three females were found bound with tape and belts, and then, as I said, wrapped in camouflage printed burlap. All of that takes time, and according to one of the police commissioners who worked on the case, it appeared that the victim's wrapped bodies had likely been tossed out of a truck in that marshy land along the beach. So I'm assuming they were deceased before they were tossed. And by the way, profilers have said that this way of like tossing the bodies, discarding them, almost like the crust in the pizza box, is a way for the perpetrator to first further humiliate his victims. The method of death is believed to have been strangulation, and we know that a belt with two letters, including the letter H, was left near one of the bodies. So despite Hoorman having more than 92 weapons in his home, it sounds like those were not the objects of choice when it came to harming these women. Using one's hand or an object like a belt makes for a more up-close and personal experience. Some of the criminal profilers I heard talking about the case have said that this guy is likely a sexual sadist, which points tragically to him most likely torturing his victims. We know that he had a thing for sex workers because 
because the three women whose deaths he's charged with were all escorts, and apparently he frequently hired escorts. Maybe that's where all the money was going. Plus, victim Amber Costello's scheduler, so to speak, who saw Amber's final client, said that the guy had a thing for prostitutes. It sounds like the perpetrator craved these young women, but he also loathed them for their line of work, sort of a sick love-hate relationship. Amanda Bartholomew, whose sister Melissa was one of the Gilgo Beach victims, has revealed that Melissa's killer tormented her at age 15, as well as the rest of her family, by calling them on the phone in 2009 after Melissa vanished and describing in detail how he'd essayed and killed her. He also used Melissa's personal cell phone on at least seven occasions to dial up her family. How cruel, making them think for a second that Melissa might be alive only for them to hear his scary voice. Further, in one call this monster described to Amanda what she looked like, what her name was. This made it clear that he'd been keeping tabs on her after he harmed Melissa. Amanda described the man's voice as follows. He had a strong accent, New York, Long Island. He was very monotone when he talked, like a middle-aged white guy, end quote. Police later traced the calls and found pings from her dead sister's phone had been detected at Penn Station in Manhattan, close to where Herman's office is located. They also found pings in Massapequa, where he lives. Amanda said the man had called her sister insulting names, referring to her sex work. First, this person killed Melissa, their precious loved one, and then he torments her family further with these calls. This is one twisted puppy. Melissa Bartholomew disappeared on July 12th of 2009, and before her remains were found on December 11th of 2010, her family hired a psychic. Guess what this psychic told them. She said that Melissa would be found in a shallow grave along the shore near a sign with the letter G. Whoever that psychic was sounds like she's the real deal. That's exactly how Melissa was found on Gilgo Beach. Let's go back to that interior designer who noticed the large locked room in the basement of the Hoorman home. She said that when news of Rex Hoorman's arrest broke, it came as a total shock. She said she developed a friendly working relationship with him and she found him smart and mostly friendly, that's interesting, mostly friendly, if socially awkward. She likened him to a real-life Dexter, the Showtime character who led a double life as a serialist. It would appear that Rex Hoorman was definitely leading a double life, one of the respected architect in Manhattan and a family man, and the second as an evil serialist allegedly stalking young women. Now, this designer shared photos of herself and others in their networking group enjoying drinks in a bar. 
Hoorman also did some nice things for this woman, like take her to a firing range in the Bronx where he had an architectural job to do, and he taught her there how to fire a 9mm handgun. Another time, when she slipped on ice, Rex Hoorman accompanied her in a cab to urgent care, and he waited as she got an MRI. He then took her back to her apartment in Manhattan. She said he got her settled into her room and then went off to get her medication. And when he came back, he made sure that she had something to eat. The designer is now wondering if Hoorman was considering harming her, and if so, why he didn't. She said, quote, I'm not an ugly girl, but I guess I wasn't on the menu, which is great, end quote. Yeah, great, lucky girl you're not on the menu. So in Rex Hoorman, it sounds like we have a guy who has two faces. He can be charming when he needs to be, but also extremely cold and antisocial at other times. He's also a professional guy working as an architect, which you'd think would earn him a decent living. But it's been reported that he once owed $425,000 in taxes to the IRS, but failed to pay, dating as far back as 2005. And about half of that was either repaid or is no longer owed. And currently, Hoorman and his wife owe $81,500 in personal income tax to the state. I'm going to call him R.H. because it's getting hard to say Hoorman. Okay, so R.H. was also observed in the local Whole Foods near his home in Massapequa, stealing oranges from the kids' corner in the store. Now, this is a place where parents can leave their kid to play while they shop. Scary that a guy who searched for so much child pee would be hanging out in that section of the grocery store where little kids are left to play. That bothers me more than his theft of the five to six oranges he was seen leaving the store with. By the way, he was said to be wearing very dirty, shabby clothes at the time. In addition to this stuff, he also filed a number of lawsuits in New York courts, accusing drivers of injuring him in car accidents. Three of those cases have been settled or discontinued, and at least one is still pending. I would guess that that case is going to be closed real soon. One person said that R.H. deliberately got in front of his elderly mother's car to get lightly tapped by it, and then he tried suing this lady for his pain and suffering. Apparently, the mother had some money. If all these stories are true, then R.H. lacks a moral compass and seems like some sort of dangerous grifter who floated between Massapequa Park, where he lives, and Manhattan, where he works. We're also learning details about his younger years. Apparently, his father died when he was 12. In addition to that trauma, much like suspect Brian Koberger was said to have been bullied as a child, Hoorman was bullied as a child. Criminal profilers always look to a suspect's childhood to see if there was some traumatic event that may have led to the person becoming a serialist. I'm wondering if his father's death was the trigger, or was it both the death and the bullying? Back to R.H.'s home, crime scene investigators have been spotted there removing several large items, including a metal file cabinet, 
and a large glass display case with, get this, a life-size doll of a blonde child replete with a red dress and a red bow in its hair. I heard criminal profilers say that this doll has to have some symbolism. I just thought it belonged to his daughter, but the profilers seem to think it possible that it has a special meaning for our age. I immediately thought of the toddler whose remains were also found along Gilgo Beach. Could that doll be a reminder of that toddler's death? The police haven't charged RH for the toddler's death, but you have to wonder. Those life-size dolls are so creepy, you kind of expect them to blink their eyes and start moving any second. Freaking scary. My dad bought me two of those for my doll collection when I was a little girl, and I never played with them. I was terrified of them. Back to victim Amber Costello's handler. I'm calling him that instead of pimp because it just sounds more dignified. Back in 2010, after Amber was killed, the handler accurately described Amber's last client. He said, quote, looking like an ogre and being the size of a mountain with a broad frame and glasses. Along with that physical description, the handler also told the Suffolk County Police that this very tall and large guy drove a black Chevy Avalanche truck. Guess who drives one of those? Rex Hoorman. And in fact, the black avalanche was captured in the Hoorman driveway in both 2007 and 2021 in street views of the house on Bing and Google. The avalanche ended up being one of the key pieces of evidence that investigators working the case anew from 2022 to 2023 used to tie Hoorman to Amber's death. I have to say, it took a pimp ultimately to help get the case solved. I never thought I would say anything nice about a pimp. Without this man's two accurate descriptions, the police would not have known to look for a tall, burly man who drove a black avalanche. The police themselves have said that the Chevy avalanche was the turning point leading to Hoorman's arrest. Suffolk County Police Chief Rodney Harrison said, quote, Once we got that car, who it connected to, that's when the investigation got legs, end quote. And more props to this pimp, because to report all of this to the police meant that he had to admit first what he did for a living, and second, that prior to Amber's death, he and Amber had planned to rob Horman. This was their modus operandi. They would lure a John to Amber and then pull a scheme where wherein the handler pretended to be Amber's very upset boyfriend. The John would quickly leave, and then they'd keep the money. All you need to do is look at Rex Hoorman and know that that's not a good idea. And this is exactly what Amber and her pimp did to Rex Hoorman on the first night that he showed up at Amber's home. Then he texted her and said something like, not very nice, sort of, you better give me a rain check for next time. And then the next time he showed up to be with Amber is the last time Amber was alive. That's all for now. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. I know this was jam-packed. Did you learn anything new about this guy? If so, smash that like button, subscribe to the channel, and I'll see you next time.